Luke 17, and we'll read from verses 1 to 10. And he said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. But which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? Will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me until I've eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too... When you do all the things which are commanded you, say we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. I'd like to speak to you today on verses uh, 5 through 10, particularly the parable of the unworthy slaves. Verse 10, say we are unworthy slaves. I think the authorized version says we are unprofitable servants, unworthy slaves. As with all the parables of the Lord Jesus, we approach this parable with a sense of great inadequacy. Uh, There are mysteries here and a feeling that the Lord is saying some profound things that uh, we haven't quite understood, maybe haven't even come close to understanding. These things about faith like a mustard seed and uh, uh, when you've done everything, say we're just unworthy slaves. Uh, A sense of mystery here. Nevertheless, the Word of God is profitable uh, before we understand it all. If that weren't the the case we wouldn't have any hope at all because we couldn't understand we couldn't profit from anything because we don't understand everything fully Uh, it's profitable and there are some things that we do understand from this and so we want to go ahead and try to look at this parable of the unworthy slaves this has come to my mind a number of times over the past few months and I've always waited on it but uh, Uh, there is a lot here. Notice, first of all, the context here. The context, uh, we always want to get that. And we see in verses 1 and 2, the Lord warning us regarding the terrible sin of causing another Christian to stumble. I have just a tiny bit enough of a cold to make it hard to speak. Uh, Verses 1 and 2, the warning against the terrible sin of causing another Christian to stumble. 
He says it's inevitable that stumbling blocks should come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And then in uh, verses 3 and 4, he warns and exhorts us regard, regarding our responsibility to, for, to reprove and to forgive sin. He says, be on your guard. Literally, take heed to yourselves. Watch out about yourself. Now, take heed to yourself. Make sure that if your brother sins, you reprove him. Take heed to yourself about that. Because you can get into a real mess by failing to reprove someone else when they sin. Isn't that something? Take heed to yourselves. <clears throat> if your brother sins, rebuke him. And then concerning forgiveness, he says, if he repents, forgive him, and even up to seven times a day. Now that's the context then of verse 5. Verse 5, and the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now well might they say that, because after all, the Lord has just laid some pretty heavy things on them. He says, first of all, if you cause a Christian to stumble, it would be better for you then to cause another Christian to stumble, it would be better for you if somebody took one of these heavy millstones, which was this big stone they used to grind grain. The ox would turn this thing around. And this thing is a huge chunk, you know, of, of rock. And it had a hole in the center of it. And take that and put a rope through there or something and tie it around your neck with that huge stone and just toss it overboard out in the midst of the Mediterranean. So that it would be better for you if that would happen to you than what would happen. Thank you. I've got one up here, but I may need two the way we're going. <laughs> it would be better for you uh, if that would happen than if you suffer the consequences of causing a Christian to stumble. Now that's pretty heavy. But it, right back to back with that, he immediately goes on to the next thing and said, Watch out. If somebody sins... You make sure that you reprove them. And don't go out and talk about them. You go to them. And uh, that doesn't sound too bad until you actually start trying to obey it. And then as soon as you do, immediately, it's, Lord, increase our faith. And then immediately after he said that, he hits them again before, you know, right in the same sentence practically, in the same verse, he hits them again with this statement. He says, now if somebody comes to you, Seven times, if he sins against you, forgive him. And if he sins against you, you're not talking about sinning against somebody else, but against you. He does something directly to you. Sins against you seven times in one day. And comes and says, I repent. You forgive him. <clears throat> now, uh, evidently these disciples were listening more than they usually did. Because they got enough of this to say, Lord, increase our faith. We need some help. Uh, when they heard these sayings, they said, Lord, increase our faith. How thankful we can be uh, for this wonderful prayer of the apostles. Lord, increase our faith. <clears throat> it directs our attention to the real heart of the matter, doesn't it? When we're confronted with things like verses 3 and 4, Things that make our hearts melt. And we say, how in the world am I ever going to walk in that? And you know, they had 
day after day of hearing these teachings of the Lord, these impossible things. And when we get in that state and we feel our hearts melt and uh, our knees grow weak, what is the real issue? The real issue is faith. And they were absolutely right on this. They realized this is the thing. I mean, they just felt it. Spontaneously, they felt it. And they said, Lord, increase our faith. Now, it's good for us to have our attention directed to the real issue. I mean, when things are going on, we need to realize my faith is being tested. The Peter talks about it, doesn't he? He says in 1 Peter 1, 7, he says, the trial of your faith. Well, that's what's going on in these things that are happening, these trials and difficulties and problems. What's being tested? Your faith's being tested. When you're sick for two or three or four weeks and can't get over it, what's being tested? Or when you're sick for ten years and can't get over it, what's being tested? Your faith. When, you, when you're going without work and right before Christmas in the wintertime for two or three weeks going on and no income coming in, what's being tested? Your faith is being tested. And uh, in all of these uh, commandments that the Lord had issued and these exhortations, well, they said, Lord, increase our faith. Faith is absolutely central in the Christian life. Galatians 2.20 and following, Paul says, The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Another place he says, We walk by faith, not by sight. Every day, in day in and day out, faith is being tested. Whatever hard situation you're in, what's being tested? Your faith is being tested. <clears throat> 1 John 5, 4, John says, uh, if you want to know the, the victory, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. That's the way you're going to overcome the world even. And uh, in 1 Peter again, he says, Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Well, what are we going to do? Whom resist steadfast in your faith? That's the issue. Uh, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. So faith is the issue. Uh, when it gets to the point of beginning the Christian life, faith is the issue. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that seek him. And then faith throughout the Christian life, Hebrews 11, that whole chapter, you know, living the Christian life by faith. And uh, all the way through to the end. <clears throat> One of the first evidences of apostasy <clears throat> is unbelief. He says, beware lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief. In what? Departing from the living God. So it's a warning sign. This thing is very central. Uh, faith. It's everywhere. Faith is central. Now notice this too. I'm just talking about some things we can learn from this prayer of the apostles. Notice this. That faith admits of degrees. There's such a thing as little faith and great faith. There's such a thing as weak faith and strong faith. You remember in Hebrews 4, Abraham 
without becoming weak in faith, he considered carefully his own body now dead. But what happened? He grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. So there's such a thing as being weak in faith. That's biblical. That's scriptural to talk about. Weak faith. There's such a thing as having strong faith. And there's such a thing as having uh, little faith. And there's such a thing as having great faith. Uh, the Lord actually talks about that. You remember that Syrophoenician woman? Oh, woman, great is your faith. Now that is something when Jesus says that to somebody. And uh, that centurion, he says, I tell you, I haven't found such great faith, not in Israel. So those are amazing things. Here, and in both cases, people that are outside the fold of Israel, people that have, I mean, that have no claim on God at all, and you know that's where we're, that's where we're going, we're going to see. That's how faith grows when you realize you don't have any claim at all upon God. And these, it's significant, these people, this centurion and this Syrophoenician woman, both of them were the ones that Jesus said had great faith. Now here's the disciples out there, and they said, why couldn't we cast him out? Why couldn't we cast the spirit out? He says, because of the littleness of your faith. And the Greek word there is a compound word, because of your little faith. It's just one word, little faith. So there are degrees to faith. Now notice also, just in this prayer, what we learn from this, and that is, we can ask God, beloved, to increase our faith. It's right to do that. And he's able to do it, and we can do it. And I just say, encourage you this morning, ask God to increase your faith. Your faith is weak, you're vacillating, you're miserable, maybe you're anxious, you're afraid. Whatever condition, go to God and say, Lord, increase my faith. I can remember when I was in Lawrence, Kansas, many years ago, living there, and I can remember that little apartment where I lived alone, getting down on my knees and saying, Lord, increase my faith. And I can feel the effects of that prayer 30 years later. I mean, God hears and answers prayer. And uh, I, I, I don't have... Much faith now, but I got more than I had then, I'll tell you that much. I mean, it's possible for God to change us, to help us, to bring us out of things that are, you know, there's some things that, that I was in knots over and miserable about that I can't even remember what they were anymore. That's God helping, answering our prayers to increase our faith. So, faith. We can ask God to increase it, and He is pleased to do that. And we can actually, Timothy, in 1 Timothy, Paul says that it's possible to pursue faith. He says, pursue righteousness. Now you can see, I, you can pursue righteousness, you can pursue godliness. But he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith. It's something that you can pursue, just like Dick was talking about today. In this thing, the question, you know, am I striving in my Christian life? Does that describe my Christian life, or am I just floating along? Well, we can actually pursue faith. 
And it's something that, you know, if I'm weak in faith, I can actually pursue it and get more. God will give it to me. Well, all good so far, isn't it? Everything makes sense so far. In verses 1 to 4, the Lord lays out three weighty teachings back to back. And in verse 5, the apostles cry out, Lord, increase our faith. We need more faith. That all makes sense. They spontaneously cry out regarding the real issue. So all that is clear. Now the problems begin. Uh, the very next verse, verse 6, and they cry out and they say, Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you'd say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, <clears throat> I say the problems begin. The question comes up, is the Lord saying, there's two possibilities here, is the Lord saying, look, your problem is not more faith, your problem is faith, period. If you had the tiniest imaginable amount of real faith, you could do the impossible. Now that's one interpretation. You could move mountains. Your problem's not more faith. And if you read down through here, it sounds kind of like he's saying that. He's saying if you had faith in the tiniest amount, you could do these things. That's one interpretation. The other one is this. Is the Lord saying this? You're right to ask me to increase your faith. But you don't have any idea how much you need it increase. You don't have any idea how small and minuscule it is. You've got in your mind, look, Lord, I've got this much faith. And I need to have this much. Now, he said, the fact is, you have, and this goes in, see, really, there's a sense in which this first one is right in a sense. And that is, he's talking about what real faith is. He said, look, what real faith is, you have such a tiny speck right now, if you even had the amount of a mustard seed, these things would be happening. So he's saying, and, I, and this is the interpretation I accept, I believe it's right. After all, they did have some faith. They had some real faith. It was just so tiny. And so he's, he's correcting their idea about what faith is and yet acknowledging it is possible to grow and it's right to ask and you do have some. But he says this is what uh, faith is really like. True faith is such a thing that it brings you immediately into the realm of the impossible. That's what he's saying. True faith is such a thing that it brings you immediately into the realm of the impossible. Uh, this thing of having a mulberry tree uprooted and planted in the sea, it was a saying among the rabbis that the, mul the roots of the mulberry tree would stay in the ground for 600 years. How they got that, I don't know, but that's what they said. That was proverbial, in other words. So Jesus uses this picture of the mulberry tree. And he also uses a picture in other places of a mountain, moving mountains, mountains being taken up and cast in the sea. Now, what's the point of that? <clears throat> well, uh, if you take it literally, it's just silly. What, what if you had the power 
to uproot trees and plant them in the ocean. Wouldn't that be something? You could go around uprooting trees and moving them out into the ocean. A very productive thing. See, that's stupid. That's not what the Lord's talking about. He's saying something impossible. This tree that's proverbial for having roots that'll last for 600 years, he said even a tree like that, you just say to it, move out there and be planted in the ocean, and it would happen. He's saying impossible things will happen when true faith is present. That's what he's saying. Faith brings you into the realm of the impossible. You just get a tiny grain of faith, and immediately mountains start moving. Not literal mountains, but things that are absolutely impossible in the spiritual realm start happening in the presence of true faith. I didn't do this intentionally, but there it is right there, what I read to you. That's impossible stuff. You don't have the commander of the raid on Pearl Harbor embracing a guy who was shot down in Doolittle's raid and put in a prison camp and tortured in Japan. You don't have them embracing and loving one another. That is an absolute impossibility. But Jesus said you get a little faith there in the picture, and impossible things start happening. He says that's the nature of true faith, and it, it is so such a small amount of it. <clears throat> Immediately, mountains start moving. Well, these are the great miracles, things in the spiritual realm. But even in the physical realm, I, I would just remind you of this. Here's these weak, vacillating apostles, and notice here it calls them apostles. That's usually you don't ever see that in the Gospels. It's disciples, but here they're called apostles. These apostles right here who are so weak, I mean, here's Peter going to deny the Lord and that type of thing. Uh, there was a day coming when that same Peter would walk into the room of a dead body named Dorcas and raise her from the dead. There was a day coming when that same Peter, and you know, we put down Peter a lot and uh, the way Peter was, you got to realize uh, there's not very many preachers all down through church history that have seen 3,000 people saved in one day. And that same Peter, that is one of these asking here, Lord, increase our faith, there was a day coming when he would walk down the street and they would bring people out and lay them in the street in hopes that may, sick people, in hopes that maybe Peter's shadow might fall on them. So, you know, impossible things happened not only spiritually, but physically even, through the miraculous, glorious things in the physical realm even. And there was a day coming when Peter was going to need what's taught about in this parable coming up. Now, back to the Lord's teaching on faith. He says, faith is such a thing that just a grain of it puts you in a different realm. And what, what experience and reason and probability say can't happen does happen in the realm of faith. George Mueller, I remember in uh, some book that I had by him on the subject of prayer, he said, uh, and, and on the subject of faith, he said, faith doesn't have anything to do with probability. You don't even consider that. Probability doesn't have anything to do with it at all. Isn't that something? 
And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying faith is such a thing that it puts you in a different realm. You're not dealing with probabilities. And we say, <clears throat> when we hear something like this, and when we look at this, we say, look, a mustard seed, a little grain of faith, what power there is in faith. What a thing faith must be. And if you were a man of faith, it's like this giant walking around with this big club of faith, see. That's the way we start thinking. That's the way American Christianity starts thinking. And so the Lord gives this parable, and I think this is exactly the connection of verse 7. He gives this parable. He says, as soon as he says this about the greatness of faith, he says in verse 7, but which of you having a slave plow and attending and so on. In other words, <clears throat> even if you get to where mountains are being moved and trees are being plucked up, don't think you've done something great. Don't think you've done something great. Like I said, Peter would be one example of somebody that's going to need this. There was a time coming when he would see people raised from the dead. And he said, don't think you've done something great when you've done that. You've done the least thing expected of you. You know, you haven't even done that. It's your duty to believe God. And anything less is wicked and unnatural. It's what the Bible calls an evil heart of unbelief. So don't start getting puffed up because you've got a mustard seed of faith. And you've seen mountains move. That is the least thing expected. <clears throat> if you believed God 100% and obeyed God by your faith 100%, you would only be doing what's reasonable and right and expected. I mean, if we live, we are so saturated in unbelief that anytime anybody believes God for anything, we think it's some big deal. If we step on a mouse's tail, you know, we want to go and report it. And we start thinking in our own minds how great I am. I saw this thing happen, you know, and I, and I believed God and all that. It's just, it's evil. I mean, less than 100% believing God is sin. See that? And we're not even beginning to have a speck of faith. So he's saying if you had the greatest faith, 100% total faith, all it'd do is all you'd be doing is doing what's your duty, what's a normal, reasonable thing. Unbelief is wicked. That's the meaning of the parable. Faith is not some great thing. Well, somebody says if it's not some great thing, how can it produce such great results? I mean, one little mustard seed of it, <clears throat> and you have mountains moving. Well, the answer is this. This tiny, tiny speck of faith puts us in touch with a great, great, great big God. Now, that's, the, that's the, the key to the thing, you see. Now, that's the way faith is. That's what Mueller, George Mueller on probability says, you don't even consider probability whether it's probable. It's not probable that a guy that has a quarter in his pocket can buy a $2 million building. But he said, you don't even consider that. Now, what is he considering? Well, he's considering whether or not God wants him to buy the building. And this big, big, big God that he's got a tiny little bit of faith in, he's in touch with the one who's able to do the impossible. Now, that's what Jesus is saying. 
The apostles say, Lord, our faith is small. Increase our faith. He says, your faith is so much smaller than you realize. It's just a tiniest speck. If you even had a mustard seed of faith, you'd be seeing mountains moving into the ocean. Because this little bit of faith puts you in touch with an infinite God. And he says, when that begins to happen and you see those mountains moving, don't think you've done some great thing. You've still just got a speck of faith. And if you did believe God 100%, it's only what you ought to do. It's wicked that you don't. You see that? That's the meaning, I think, of this parable. He's preparing them and teaching them concerning what true faith is. And you see this in a parallel passage in Mark 11. Uh, This was the motto, some of you remember, this was the motto of the China Inland Mission. (coughs) Hudson Taylor, Mark 11, verse 22. He's teaching about this thing again, of this faith that moves mountains. Mark 11:22 Jesus answered saying to them have faith in God. You don't have faith in faith. He just says have faith in God. How big God is. Have faith in God. If it's just a little speck of real faith in in God, he's so big that he's able to even take mountains. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted to you. So he's directing our attention. He says, have faith in God. Put your faith in God. Don't look at the outward circumstances. Look at the power of God and how big God is. Dick one time talked to us about David going up against Goliath. There's a good example of it. David was not comparing Goliath, you know, himself to Goliath. If you start comparing yourself to Goliath, it was an impossible thing. He was a dead man. He knew he would never, there was no way. But what he was doing when he went out there, he was comparing Goliath to God. That that is a totally different picture, isn't it? You start comparing Goliath to God, he's nothing. He is absolutely nothing. And he said, you, he said, I don't come to you with all these different weapons. I come to you in the name of the living God, whom you have blasphemed and defied and defiled. And God is the one that's going to deliver you into my hand. Now, see, he had faith in a great God. Have faith in God. God's the center of attention. Now, <clears throat> with that, I just say we're almost ready to start. And in another sense, we're already done. Because that's the heart of this parable. And I don't have a lot to say about it. But uh, I just want to point out just a few things in closing from verses 7 to 10. First of all, this. Slaves belong completely to their master. They are at his disposal. A slave is at the disposal of his master. Now, We are the Lord's slaves. 
That's the, the term slave, it's properly translated here. It's not servant in the sense of you hire somebody, but it's a slave. And where are the Lord's slaves? We're his bondservants. And uh, you remember in Romans uh, 1, 1, Paul takes that as the highest honor that he could possibly have. He says, Paul, what? A servant of Jesus Christ, a slave, a bond slave to Christ. That's the biggest thing. And Moses, you know, Moses, what? Moses, the servant of the Lord. What a, you know, this is real honor and authority here to be a slave of Jesus Christ. And so we are the Lord's slaves. And uh, it's a great honor to be the Lord's slave, but it does involve belonging completely to him. And that means that our whole lives are to be taken up with serving him. You get one thing done, you start in on another thing, in serving God. That is our life. I mean, what else is there? We think we're going to, you know, have some corner of everything to ourselves where God doesn't have any say over that. That isn't right. We belong to him completely. We work for him, and then when we get done working for him, we wait upon him. Matthew Henry brings that out. He says you work for him, then you wait upon him. And then you work for him, and you wait upon him. Uh, notice here, slaves have different jobs. Some of them are out plowing. Some of them are tending sheep. <clears throat> I always think of Ravenhill when I think of somebody out plowing. And uh, when I always used to think of Brother Merle, he's somebody tending sheep. But uh, when they come in, you got to wait on the master. Wait upon him. So slaves belong completely to their master. They're at his disposal, and our whole lives are taken up with serving him. That's a wonderful privilege. Secondly, there's nothing a slave can do. Now, this just almost sounds silly, ludicrous. Isn't it obvious? There's nothing a slave can do to make his master indebted to him. You know, if I work hard today for my master, he'll really owe me something. I mean, he's you're a slave. He owns you. He owns you. And uh, he said, when you've done everything commanded of you to do, which nobody does, there's nobody, no Christian that's ever walked in everything, uh, or even come close. But he says, if you did everything, when you get done, say, we are unprofitable, we're unworthy slaves. Now, unprofitable, <clears throat> not in the sense of being worthless. Not in the sense of being worthless, but in the sense of having done nothing for which payment is due. You see that? We're unprofitable slaves. We haven't done anything for which payment is due. We haven't even lived up to what we should have done. Do we realize this, beloved? When we, th we start thinking that we've done something for God, do you realize if you did everything, which again I say nobody has done everything, they, nobody has done a fraction, but if you did everything, you would not even have earned the Lord's thanks. He said that, didn't he? Does he thank that slave? Oh, thank you so much. You know, you went and got my shoes for me when I told you to. That's not the way it works. They say, go get my shoes, and he goes and gets them. That's the, as far as what's deserved, as far as what's earned, uh, 
we don't even deserve the Lord's thanks. Can you imagine the Lord thanking us? You know, after 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 our lifetime, he's, you, you know, I, I'm really indebted to you for what you've done here. I mean, everything we ever ever did, we He gave us everything required to do it in the first place, even the will to do it. He works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. The ability to do it and the will to do it, He gave to us. So we never put God uh, in debt to us. <clears throat> this is quite a contrast uh, to the Catholic idea of works of supererogation. It's called works of supererogation. What that is, now this is the way the theory goes. <laughs> Why do you pray to the saints? What can they do for you? Well, the saints, here's, they were commanded to do this much. And they did everything they were commanded to do. And they actually went beyond that and did works of super arrogation. And they piled up a big storehouse of merit. They went beyond what they were required to do and did so much more that they built up all this merit. And so if you pray to them, they'll apply some of that to you. Now, you see how impossible that is? Can you imagine loving God more than with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? I mean, that's the, that's the commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, you go ahead and do that perfectly and then go on and do a little bit more and build up some merit see, for somebody else. That's ludicrous. There is no such thing as that. Nobody even does what they're required to do, much less build up more. <clears throat> so, the second point, there's nothing a slave can do to make his master indebted to him. And the third thing here that we see is that all rewards are purely of grace. Anything, you know what God does? He works in us to will and do of His good pleasure, and then He rewards us and blesses us when we do. Just out of grace. That's all it is, just out of grace. When He says, well done, my good and faithful servant, that's, that's totally unmerited. It's just a grace that He would do that. And you come over to Luke 12, and this is something He has already taught in the Gospel of Luke. Luke uh, 12 and verse 35. <clears throat> he says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps alight and be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Now listen to this. Truly I say to you, that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at table and will come up and wait on them. Isn't this incredible? The Lord is saying, he's saying, you're not worthy. You're not worthy to even get to eat your food until you've done everything. And if you've done everything, you're still not worthy of anything. You haven't purchased anything. Now he says, whenever I come back, I'm going to have you sit down and I'm going to wait on you. See, this parable that we're looking at today shows the way that it ought to be if God was just a God of justice 
only, but He is a God of overflowing grace. We've got to have this clear in our minds before we appreciate the other. But He's saying, I'll come and I'll wait upon you. And what an, what an incredible thing to think of the Master. Here's all the slaves sitting there kicked back and the Lord coming around serving them. I, think, I don't think they'll be kicked back. I think they'll be on their faces weeping. To think of the Lord serving us. He says, I didn't come to be ministered to, but to, but to minister to others. Well, what grace this is. Now, <clears throat> in, in just one closing statement. And that's this. Isn't this the setting where faith really grows? As we realize our unworthiness, and as you realize every Christian's unworthiness. Now you think of the holiest man. You've got any picture in your mind of two or three of the holiest men that you've ever known. You think of them. Jesus said the reality about them is, is that God doesn't owe them one iota. All they are is unprofitable servants. None of them have ever lived up to what, they des what the way God deserves to be treated. All of them are in debt to him. So he says, you think of the holiest person you've ever known. They did not get their prayers answered because they deserved it. They did not earn anything from God. God did not owe them anything. And the only way they got their prayers answered was by casting themselves upon the mercy of God, realizing their unworthiness that he'd ever answer them or hear them. Now when you see that, faith grows, doesn't it? Because it's not based upon how good you are or that you twist in God's arm or you've got him in your debt and he's got to pay you something now. And so I did all this, this, and this, and now God's got to answer me. If it were that way, we'd be very miserable. But he's teaching us here that no one ever anywhere at any time ever has ever gotten anything from God on the basis of them making him indebted to them. Everybody has received anything they've ever received just by sheer grace. So he says, trust in God, have faith in God, and ask Him <laughs> to move that mountain. <clears throat> well, these are, uh, these are wonderful things, aren't they? The apostles said to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. He says, I'll tell you what faith's really like. You've got so little of it. And if you get a hold of faith, what it does, it puts you in touch with the infinite God. And if that begins to happen, realize that's, that's the least thing that ought to be happening. And uh, have our minds renewed to see just how dark this world is, how unbelieving the world is, how unreasonable it is. You remember in Jeremiah, he says uh, even a donkey knows its stall. And, you know, it, but but my people have forsaken me. So it's it's sin is unnatural. We think it's some big thing when somebody obeys God. It's just as unnatural as a donkey not knowing what stall to go into. It doesn't fit at all. It's like the snow not staying on the ground, you know, going up into the sky instead of falling down from the sky. Things that are unnatural. I think that's what Jesus is saying to them here. 
Well, amen.